In the Peanuts comic strip, Charlie Brown and Lucy are having a philosophical conversation. Lucy says, Life is like a deck chair, Charlie Brown. Some place it so they can see where they are going. Some place it so that they can see where they've been, and some place it so they can see where they are at present. Charlie Brown replies, I can't even get mine unfolded. In the book of Ecclesiastes, like Charlie Brown, King Solomon is having a hard time getting his deck chair unfolded. He's having difficulty making sense out of life. Life can be perplexing. Winston Churchill once described the country of Russia as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And that's how I often feel about life. As one person said, life goes on. I just forgot why. Life is a knot that refuses to come untangled. It's a dilemma. It's a predicament. It's a puzzle. We begin life as if it were a rainbow. And at the end, we expect to find that proverbial pot of gold. But that's not the way it always pans out. One commentator has suggested that the author's intent in Ecclesiastes is to show us that at the end of life's rainbow, there lies not a pot of gold, but a pot of salty liver soup. How do you feel about life when things don't go as you expected? All too often, concepts like fairness and fulfillment seem like a fleeting fantasy. Life can be hard and rough. Life is often filled with disappointment and disillusionment. You'll relate to Ecclesiastes if you've ever left life with a bitter taste in your mouth. Chuck Colson writes, Life isn't logical or sensible or orderly. Life is a mess most of the time. And theology must be lived in the midst of that mess. The book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's attempt to find meaning in the midst of this mess. In chapter 1, Solomon introduces himself and he begins his quest for meaning. Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word Ecclesiastes is a Greek word that can be translated into English as the word preacher. Solomon is the king of Israel, but for a time he assumes the role as teacher to his people, and not just his people, but all people. He has some important lessons about life. Remember, Solomon began his career godly man. In the beginning, he served and he respected God. But there was a period in his life when he turned his back on God and tried to find meaning and purpose for his life apart from God. And if ever there was a man who could have achieved such a goal, it would have been Solomon. The Bible tells us that he was both the wisest and the wealthiest man who had lived up until that time or even thereafter. No one was as wise as Solomon except Jesus. Scholars would come from all over the world to match wits with the renowned king. They would come to Jerusalem for a battle of the brains. But one by one they would leave marveling at this king's amazing, overwhelming wisdom. Solomon not only was wise, he was wealthy. He had cash to flash. Believe it or not, his yearly salary was 666 talents of gold. A talent's about 100 pounds, so you just figure out how much that was. 
As one Old Testament scholar writes, no era of Israel's history was richer in possibilities for various pleasures and no person in a better position to make the most of them than Solomon. And Solomon used his position and his power and his purse to experiment with everything imaginable in pursuit of deep down fulfillment. He traveled down the path of science and philosophy. Then he turned to pleasure, then to achievement. He moved on to religion, materialism, fame, power. He contemplated the value of hard work and long life and large families and a good name. And the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's final report. Here he recounts his trek down these different avenues and he pauses in this book to reflect on his findings. He begins in verses 2 and 3. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit is a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Now this is an eloquent way of saying, why even bother to roll out of the sack? What's the use in getting up to face another day? It's all just vanity. This word vanity is the key word in Ecclesiastes. It means vapor or mist. And it implies an emptiness, a dissatisfaction, an unfulfillment. It's the modern day equivalent of the phrase, whatever. You ever talk to this younger generation and they turn to, whatever, man. It's just the modern way of saying, why bother? Who cares? Hey, nothing really matters anyway. It's all just vanity. The word vanity appears 37 times in Ecclesiastes. And it sums up how Solomon is feeling about life. Without God, life is no more meaningful to him than a vapor or mist or a puff of smoke. It's no more meaningful to him than a puff of your breath on a cold winter morning or the steam you wipe from your glasses on a hot, humid day. The word vanity could be translated, whatever is left after you break a soap bubble. Life without God is like chasing after soap bubbles. Your kids will chase and chase those little bubbles, won't they? But the instant they capture the prize, it pops and they're left with nothing to show for their efforts. Adults, sadly, play the same game. Another key phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes appears in verse 3, under the sun. This phrase occurs 29 times in Ecclesiastes. In his quest for meaning, Solomon limited his search to things under the sun. Not heavenly things, mind you, but earthly things. His boundaries in his quest for meaning are here below. The material, the physical pursuits, this is where he searches. He tried to keep God out of the picture. He tried to make sense out of life apart from God, simply under the sun. Solomon is not the only man who has tried to find meaning in life apart from God. Other brilliant men have tried and come to the same conclusion. George Bernard Shaw once moaned, Life is a series of inspired follies. A French proverb reads, Life is an onion. When it's peeled, there's nothing left, and one cries the whole time peeling it. The Jewish rabbi, Sholem Alechem, once wrote, Life is a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. 
Philosopher Joseph Kutrich writes, A man's life has no more meaning than the life of the humblest insect that crawls from one annihilation to another. William Cowper described life apart from God as the toil of dropping buckets into empty wells and growing old in drawing up nothing. Even good old Charlie Brown, no less a philosopher than Charlie Brown, once said, I have a new philosophy. I'm only going to dread one day at a time. If all there is to life is what's under the sun, I too would be pessimistic. But there is more to life than just what's under the sun. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. All is not vanity. Life is not worthless. Life can be satisfying and fulfilling if you will look above the sun, if you'll look to the sun, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. If you'll look to Jesus, life under the sun is vain. It's a drag. But if you'll look to the sun, Jesus Christ, life will take on a whole new meaning. When we come to Christ, when we get in touch with God, as we relate our lives to Him, the value of life gets marked up. Our everyday existence takes on an eternal significance once we come in contact with God and begin to live with Him. H.G. Wells once wrote, Until a man has found God and been found by God, he begins at no beginning. He works to no end. He may have his friendships, his partial loyalties, his scraps of honor, but all these things fall into place and life falls into place only with God. This is the truth that Solomon discovers in the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 4 says, One generation passes away, And another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. He begins by comparing the temporalness of man with the permanence of nature. I mean, doesn't doesn't it depress you just a little bit to realize the trees in your front yard will outlive you? Doesn't that bother you? See, our lives are like mere blips on the radar screen of history. Nature runs like clockwork. The sun rises, it sets. Life goes on as if man were never here. The individual plays a minor role in the grand scheme of things. And here's Solomon's point. There's all this motion, but there's no meaning. Man is trapped in a monotonous rut called life. People, families, nations come and go. Actors and props change. But the stage, the script, the storyline always remains the same from one generation to another. This is why people long for something new, something novel. It makes them feel as if they're special. They've experienced something distinct from former generations. Solomon hates to disappoint you, those of you who revel in the novel. But there is really nothing new under the sun, he tells us. He says in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said? See, this is new. It has already been here in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. 
I mean, you think you're onto something new, special, sets you apart, but hey, just the same old thing. <laughs> Look at today's fashions. You know where my son goes to get his cool-looking clothes? He digs back into my closet. He finds the clothes I haven't worn in 20 years. He thinks they're cool. He thinks they're real exciting. What goes around comes around, man. Styles are cyclical. If you'll hold on to your outdated threads long enough, they'll be back in style. You just watch. You'll see. The Greeks used to say the ancients have stolen all our best ideas. (laughs) There is nothing new under the sun. This is why we need to be aware about religious teachings that claim to be new. Satan is always dressing up old ideas and repackaging them in new containers. For example, if you really study the new age religion, you'll realize it's nothing but the old lie that Satan sold to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan promised them that if they ate the forbidden fruit, they could become like gods. That's the same suggestion that's being made today. Hey, don't buy it. Always remember, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. (laughs) Only Jesus can do a new work. He is the one that gives us a new heart, a new hope. He gives a new life. In chapter 2, Solomon searches for purpose on the road to pleasure. He says in verses 1 through 3, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also is vanity. I said of laughter, madness. And of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. Here the Hebrew becomes a hedonist. Solomon tries to find meaning through pleasure. And so he becomes the party animal. He begins to live out the beer commercials. He grabs for all the gusto. He lives by the motto, if it feels good, do it. The Reebok commercial becomes his slogan, Life is short, play hard. And wow, did Solomon play hard. You remember, he accumulated a thousand wives and concubines. Wine, women, wealth. For a while, Solomon's palace in Jerusalem was a perpetual party. Understand, with his salary, he could have paid for the finest food. The very best in entertainment. His parties probably made the Las Vegas Strip look like a two-bit carnival. Solomon partied hardy. But he found no peace in his pleasure. He found no satisfaction in sensuality. No real contentment in his carnal cravings. If ever there were a group of people trying to duplicate Solomon's pursuit, they would be the 20th first century Americans. For we indeed are a pleasure-crazed society. Did you know, every week in the United States, 12 million golfers vie for tee times. 9 million tennis players compete across the nets. 4 million skiers glide down the slopes. 
And each year, 23 million hunters and fishermen comb the woods and, and fish in the creeks. And you see, many of these people are trying to fill an emptiness inside, trying to find a reason for living through the pursuit of pleasure. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 3, Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. In other words, when the party is all over, life is still vanity. Life is still emptiness. Even when the thrill is gone, there's a letdown. There's a disappointment. There's an emptiness he feels inside. Here's a nutshell analysis of today's world. Anything goes, but nothing lasts. You notice that? The same could be said for Solomon. He had it all, but nothing really mattered. Remember when the woman at the well came seeking mere water, Jesus told her, you will thirst again. You know, we ought to take that three words, you'll thirst again, and make a plaque out of it. And then hang that plaque above every source of modern day pleasure. Sex, drugs, fame, money, athletics, entertainment, business, success. Hey, you get it. But understand, you will thirst again. It won't be enough. Only Jesus can quench the thirst of the human soul. Only He can manufacture real satisfaction. Pleasure is fun for a season, but when the party is over, life is still vanity. In Ecclesiastes chapter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, Solomon's search for meaning now turns down the road to enjoyment. He goes from enjoyment to employment. He goes from consumption to now construction. And he talks about his great works, the kingdom that he's building. He says, I made my works great. I built myself houses. And he lists a whole assortment of other achievements. And then he says, I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. You see, he tried his hand at business. He went about building himself an empire and yet... All of his ambition led to the conclusion, so what? Big deal. What profit is just more profits? No less an authority on money than the Wall Street Journal was quoted as saying, money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. There's a Jewish proverb that says, Shrouds have no pockets. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And perhaps God is making an important point. If you can't take it with you, then money must not be that important in the first place. You see, Solomon concluded that our purpose is not found in our purse that a person's worth isn't contained in their wallet. In chapter 3, Solomon makes another discovery. He tells us that God has taken a chip off of eternity and he has planted it in the heart of every human being. Chapter 3 begins, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. 
You see, life is a combination of various times and seasons. We experience seasons of joy and pain, elation and heartbreak, times of progression, times of frustration. And God has lessons that we can learn in each of these seasons. But here's the bottom line. None of these seasons of life are complete in and of themselves. No matter where you're at in life, it's always incomplete. Throughout life, at every stage along the way, there's a relentless longing for more. Solomon expresses it in verse 11. God has put eternity in their hearts. You see, beyond time, we sense eternity. And we long to experience its reality. We long to to understand and to comprehend that there's more to it than just what's under the sun. We have this longing that takes us above, beyond. Give us a piece of eternity. Philip Yancey writes, Made for another home, made for eternity, we finally realize that nothing this side of timeless paradise will quiet the rumors of our discontent. God gives us all things to enjoy. But if we get too attached to anything under the sun, we're headed for a crashing disappointment. It was St. Augustine who said, The soul of man is made with sweet tastes, and only God himself is rich enough to delight it. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 are important verses. Solomon says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Not only is there an eternity, but God, God's work, his works are eternal. They're final. They're permanent. Verse 15 teaches us that God is timeless. We are creatures of time, but God sits outside of time. He is above the timeline. He sees the end from the beginning. And all men will give an account of the deeds they do, Solomon says, the lives they live. And this is what really eats at the preacher. Because he says in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You've heard the old saying, right is on the scaffold and wrong is on the throne. And yet that's the way it is most of the time in this life. The wicked rule, the righteous suffer. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That aggravates us. It frustrates us. Solomon knows, though, that one day in God's time, he will make everything beautiful. He will right all wrongs. And verse 17 says, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. In the remainder of this chapter, the preacher expresses another frustration. He knows that God has exalted man above the animals. God gave Adam dominion over the animal kingdom. And yet there seems to be, to the preacher, little difference between his life and animal life. Every man lives, he eats, he sleeps, and eventually he dies like a dog. That's what the dog does. He eats, he sleeps, eventually he dies. The preacher says in verse 21, Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward 
and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. Now, some people take this verse to mean that the spirit of man lives forever, whereas the soul of the animal ceases to exist after it dies. If you are attached to your little rover, you might not like that idea. It is a possible interpretation, though. But it's not the preacher's point. The preacher's point is simpler than that. He is simply reflecting on the world's despair about the uncertainty of an afterlife. Who knows what happens to the spirit after man dies, after Rover dies? Who knows? You see, as Christians, we do believe that the spirit of man lives forever. But we have no empirical evidence to support that assertion. You can't detect the spirit of a man through a stethoscope. It doesn't show up in a blood sample or through a DNA test. Our hope, our belief in the afterlife is a matter of faith. There's no scientific confirmation pro or con. The reason we believe in life after death is the resurrection of Jesus. He not only taught the doctrine, but he returned from the dead to validate his teaching. That's why we believe in the afterlife. But for the person without God, it's a great question. And it adds to the vanity of life, the uncertainty. In chapter 4, Solomon grows more cynical, more bitter. He looks at the oppressive conditions that exist across the globe. And he makes a depressing statement in verses 2 and 3. He says, Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. In other words, the people who are dead are better off than the people who are alive. And then he says, Yet better better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Talk about a pessimistic outlook on life. You're better off dead and alive, and you're really even better off if you never even experienced this place at all. If you never even existed. Gary Preston writes, Life is a crushing disappointment. Because what we expect and hope to get from it doesn't really come. We expect righteousness and goodness to be the way to happiness, fulfillment, and prosperity. Instead, we find that the cheater gets the high grade on the exam. The liar is elected to office. The embezzler lives in the mansion and drives the Mercedes. The immoral man marries the beautiful woman. Ecclesiastes sees these contradictions and concludes that life is vanity, a devastating disappointment, a confounding contradiction. You know, every year in America, 400,000 people come to the same conclusion, apparently, because they commit or attempt to commit suicide. 40,000 of those people succeed. And if all you experience is what's under the sun, life can be just as tragic to you as well. It can be a terrible letdown. In the midst of chapter 4's pessimism, Solomon does, though, mention one commodity he has found of great value. He says in verses 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. 
For if they fall, one will lift up its companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. Solomon had riches. He had royalty. But what he valued most were relationships. He says, what good is it to work 40 hours a week, labor and sweat, if there's no one with whom you can share your paycheck? How can you take a strong stand if there's no one there to help prop you up? How can you keep warm if you lie down alone? Guys, look around you tonight. The only things in this room that are going to last forever are the people that you're sitting with. When a man reaches the end of his life, he never asks to see his checkbook or his investment portfolio, or his car. He asked to see his family and his friends. Solomon talks about relationships as the weaving together of a rope. And we are all single strands that are being intertwined together. And we become stronger intertwined than we would be apart. It's interesting though, Solomon is speaking of a relationship between two people, but he says in verse 12, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The third strand is Jesus Christ. He is the strand that holds together our friendships and our marriages and our church. He is the one who gives our relationships the strength and the tenacity to withstand the stretchings and the pressures of life's circumstances through Jesus. He is the threefold strand that makes the threefold cord that is not quickly broken. In chapter 4, verse 13, and into chapter 5, Solomon embraces fame and power. And he tells a rags-to-riches story about a king who rises from poverty to sit on the throne. But, in chapter 4, verse 16, he confesses, there was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. In other words, why work hard to become famous if you're forgotten the moment you're gone? The star always ends up becoming a mere shooting star. Who is our 25th president? Can anyone tell me? Probably not. Who won the 1952 World Series? Or the Masters Golf Championship in 1977? Who founded General Motors? Who invented the ballpoint pen? Who was the third and fourth men to walk on the moon? You see, these feats were all big deals at the time. But who remembers them now? And that's Solomon's point. He says, fame is vanity. It's worthless. You see, fame is having a recognizable name. But what's better than having a popular name is having an honorable name. Remember Proverbs 22 verse 1 told us, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And he tells us in chapter 5 how to cultivate a good name. Solomon says in verse 2, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. And then he says in verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow 
than to vow and not pay. When it comes to your marriage vow, your business deal, the promises you make to your kids, when you say it, then you better do it. You better keep your vows. Better not to promise than to promise and not deliver. How do you make a good name? By paying your vows. At the end of chapter 5, in verses 18 through 20, Solomon draws a conclusion. He says, here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Now, from Solomon's tone up to this point, we might think that Solomon would advise us to live an austere life, to develop a poverty mentality, to just separate ourselves completely from the things that are material and physical, pleasures, employment, things of that nature. But instead, Solomon says we should enjoy life. We should enjoy the gifts that God gives us. Take a walk in the park. Relish the smile on a child's face. Savor a steak for dinner. Celebrate a successful sale, even your, a victory by your favorite team. Enjoy life. First Timothy 6 verse 17 tells us, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Generally speaking, life is good. Our problem is we expect more out of it than it can produce. Life under the sun was never intended to bring us true peace and purpose. It was never meant by God to bring us ultimate satisfaction. Real life can only be found in Jesus himself. Taken in and of itself, everything in life is vanity. Your job, your home, even your kids. Oh, no, not my kids. Yeah, even your kids. So what? You you had kids. You brought kids into the world. For what? So that they can have kids and then die off and then their kids can have kids and die off and their kids' kids can have kids and die off. I mean, what's the point of it? Where does the cycle ultimately lead? What does it really accomplish? There used to be a TV show entitled My So-Called Life. That's probably the title Solomon would have chosen for his life. For he had discovered that life in and of itself is nothing but frustration and hassles and pain. It's a so-called life. Life becomes meaningful only as it relates to God. You see, when it fits into his plan, then everything gets marked up. Job, marriage, kids. Everything gets marked up. It gains value because suddenly it's fitting into an eternal plan. Solomon is saying that God's gifts cannot truly be enjoyed and appreciated apart from the God who gives those gifts. Always remember that. It's God who gives life meaning and purpose. In chapter 6, 
Solomon notes the vanity of great riches and long life. He describes in verse 2, A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. He works hard, he gains a fortune, then he leaves it to other people to enjoy. Vanity. Have you noticed you seldom see a rich person smile? You ever notice that? They're so worried about keeping what they've gotten. Ex-Beatle John Lennon had fame and fortune. And yet his biographers tell us that toward the end of his life, he, he lived a virtual recluse. He was a terribly unhappy man. He had it all, but he enjoyed nothing. Look at verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. <laughs> you see, it's vanity. A man toils and sweats and labors for what never really satisfies. Neither does a big family or a long life. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. His many years have only prolonged his misery. See, until a man revolves his life around God, everything in his life is vanity. When he adds God, when God becomes the sinner, then everything gets marked up to importance. Chapter 7 makes some other interesting observations. Verses 2 and 3 tell us, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. I don't know about you, but I'd much rather go to a birthday party than I would a funeral. But the preacher says the funeral is more beneficial. For it reminds us of the inevitability of death, something we all are going to face. In chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, the preacher draws another interesting conclusion. He says, do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this, and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Now understand, these verses are not teaching a lukewarm, compromising, fence-straddling type of commitment to living a godly life. See, he's spoken about death. And death is the ultimate proof of our fallibility. And he's saying here that in our attempts to do good, just remember that we will never overcome our humanity. You and I are never going to be perfect in this life. And if we set perfection as our goal, we're going to end up disillusioned. On the other hand, neither should we concede defeat in our battle against sin. We need to fear God. He wants us to walk in victory. He sends His Spirit into our hearts to make us overcomers. But here's the balance. Don't give in to failure. But when you fail, don't let failure bury you. Remember, you're still human. And you need more so God's grace and God's mercy. In chapters 8 and 9, Solomon brings up mankind's number one frustration. The greatest problem with life is death. 
Death spoils life. Verse 8 tells us, No one has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. Chapter 9, verses 2 and 3 puts it this way, One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Death is the common denominator. It's been said the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of every one person dies. Comedian Woody Allen cracks, It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But he will be. It doesn't matter who you are. One day, you're going to die. Robert E. Lee, his final words were, Let the tent be struck. Every one of us will one day strike the tent. Our bodies are temporary. Death is unavoidable. Under the sun, men share a common destiny. Death. It's above the sun. That's where the road forks. One road leads to heaven. The other road leads to hell. Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote this truth. Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. I like verse 4. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now understand, in ancient Israel, dogs were not pets. They were scavengers. Dogs were on the level of a rat. They were dirty. They were despised creatures. Whereas a lion was the king of beasts, a majestic animal. Nevertheless, a living mutt, Solomon says, is better than a dead lion king. See, as long as you're alive, there's hope. There's the possibility of change. And yet the moment you die, you forfeit that possibility. No more change. No more possibility for change. In that sense, it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. In the middle of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the preacher draws some conclusions. In light of the inevitability of death, he makes four suggestions for how we should live. You might want to write these down. First, since we're all going to die, Enjoy life while we're living. Enjoy life. Verse 7 says, Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Life is too short to worry. It's too short to sulk. Take the blessings that God gives you. Enjoy them to the fullest. The only time to savor earth's joys is while you're on the earth. So take advantage of the opportunities. Second, make sure you're right with God. Verses 7 and 8 tell us, For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. White was a symbol of righteousness, oil of the Holy Spirit. And the whole point of life below is to get to know God, to prepare ourselves for the life above. Third, since we're all going to die, love your spouse. Verse 9 says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun. 
Hey, life is too short to spend it fussing and fighting with your mate. So get over it. Just love each other. A tombstone read, To my beloved husband Walter, may he rest in peace until we meet again. As a Christian, you are committed to your spouse until death do you part. You know what that means? That means you're stuck. That means there's no way out. So you might as well work it out. Make the best of it. Learn to get along and love each other. Live in harmony. Man, we're all going to die. So in the time we have to live, love, don't fuss. Fourth, if there's something worth doing, give it your best effort. Verse 10 tells us, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. When you're dead and gone, there are no comebacks, no second chances. Life is too short for half-hearted commitments. If there's a cause or a job or a deed worth doing, then by all means give it all you've got, because once you're dead, no second chances. Give it your best shot. Solomon mentions another frustration at the end of chapter 9. Verses 11 and 12 tell us, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. In other words, life doesn't always reward the most talented or the hardest worker. At times, success in life simply depends on being at the right place at the right time. You, know, you hear the stories of the guy walking in and picks up the lotto ticket off the street. You know, That's not fair. I work hard. He didn't even buy the thing. That's not fair. It's frustrating to struggle to get a good education, to work hard every day, to carve out a decent living for your family and then see some less talented, less hardworking person stumble into success. Yet it happens. Chapter 10 opens with another frustration. Verse 1 says, Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. In other words, one dead fly in a bottle of perfume will ruin the fragrance. And likewise, one blemish on a person's record can soil their reputation forever. And again, that's not fair, but it, but it happens. It's a reality. Take Richard Nixon, for example. If you examine his record, he might have been one of the most effective presidents that we've ever had. He was an outstanding president by those standards. But when you hear his name, you think, oh, a distinguished statesman. <laughs> oh, a man who served our nation for five decades. No. When you hear his name, you think a liar, cheat, the scandal, the Watergate scandal. That's what you think of. You know, one little dead fly putrefies the whole arm. It's not fair. It's not right. But it's reality. It's another frustration. Verse 9 exposes, indeed, another frustration. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. In other words, there are occupational hazards in life. The stonecutter, the woodcutter, can get hit by a flying chip of what he's cutting. In other words, 
you can go out to do good. Even go out to serve God and yet get hurt in the process. Hmm. In other words, good intentions don't necessarily shelter us from bad experiences. Everyone who enters ministry needs to keep this in mind. So often we want to serve the Lord. We want to help people. And we go out with great motivation. And yet we get hurt in the process. Our feelings get bruised. Our efforts go unappreciated. It's a frustration, but it happens. Verse 10 is another way of saying don't work harder, work smarter. The preacher tells us, if the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. Don't work harder, work smarter. Reminds me of the two lumberjacks that had squared off for a wood chopping contest. The young contestant was full of energy, full of stamina. He chopped nonstop for an hour. The older contestant would get winded. And from time to time, he would stop for short intervals. But to everyone's surprise, it was the old man who won. And when he was asked later why he could chop more wood while stopping every few minutes to rest... He corrected the reporter by saying, I wasn't stopping to rest. I was stopping to sharpen my axe. He was a wise man. If you're in a demanding work environment, don't just throw more effort, more energy at your work. First, think through better ways to get the job done. Chapter 11 is full of wisdom. Verse 1 says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it. After many days, when a merchant traveled to a distant port to buy goods, he would load his purchase on a cargo ship to sail it back home. But it was a risk that he was taking. What if the ship was lost at sea? What if it was looted by pirates? And there were some anxious days while waiting on his purchase to arrive. Usually his bread returned, but he took a risk. It netted a handsome profit, but not without a risk. Life, too, is full of risks. If you're afraid to go out on a limb, if you're afraid to take a chance, if you live a timid life and never dare, you'll probably never achieve much either. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. It's true. Cast your bread on the water. Perhaps God will bring it back to you. I grew up watching Olympic snow skiing champion Jean-Claude Keeley. You remember Jean-Claude? Man, he would fly down the mountain. Knew no fear. Keeley had a motto. He said, to win, you've got to risk losing. Got to take a risk. It's been said you can't steal home and keep your foot on third base. A group of elderly folks were surveyed and asked what they would do different if they could live their lives over. And one of the most frequent answers was, I would have taken more risks when I was younger. They played it too safe. Guys, you may be disappointed if you fail, but you are doomed if you never try. Cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. 
And verse 2, give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. Now, when you ship your goods, you're going to take a risk by shipping them, but don't put them on one boat. A lot can happen at sea. Take your risk, but do what you can to minimize the risk. Spread out your cargo on seven or eight boats and (laughs) you'll be safer. Chapter 12 sums up the preacher's sermon. Verse 1 says, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. In other words, lay a spiritual foundation when you are young and when you are older and are faced with the harsher realities of life. You'll be able to trust God. Learn to follow before sin taints your mind, before conditions harden your heart, before things enslave your will. Learn to follow God when you're young. Develop spiritual disciplines and patterns in your youth, and it will service you well the rest of your life. It reminds me of the guy who raced to catch the martyr train. And just as he reached the platform, the doors closed in his face. And a person who was watching him remarked, I guess you didn't run too fast. Or I guess you didn't run fast enough. And he replied, no, the problem was I left too late. Young people, when it comes to following Jesus, don't get off to a late start. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. In verse 8, the preacher sounds one more flurry of vanities before he draws his final conclusion in verse 13. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Here is the conclusion of Solomon's experiment. He has tried all that life has to offer, and he's discovered the only thing that really matters in life is to fear God. And keep his commandments. See, to fear God is to realize that God knows better how I should live than I do. That God is the designer. That God is the creator of life. That God is our final authority. To fear God is to bow my knee before him and ask, Lord, what will you have me to do? That's it, man. That really is the whole reason that we exist here under the sun. God, what will you have me to do? Reinhold Messner was a famous mountain climber. He was the first of two men to climb Mount Everest without an oxygen bottle. And then he decided he needed to climb Mount Everest by himself. And he succeeded at that venture as well. But afterwards, Messner was asked, (laughs) as are all mountain climbers, it seems, why did you do it? And Messner replied, because at the top, all the lines converge. That's the way it is in life. Under the sun, from a strictly human perspective, life is a pain. It's a maze of twisted lines. It's a puzzle with numerous missing pieces. But when you dedicate your life to Jesus... When you focus your heart above the sun, when you focus and fix on God, then the pieces all come together. There is where the lines converge and life becomes meaningful. May we learn 
from Solomon's experiment. And may you and I be wise and trust in God to meet our deepest needs. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to our hearts tonight. Thank you for the example that Solomon left us. Some of us are sitting back tonight and thinking, well, if I just had more money, or if I could experience that thrill, or if I had enough money to afford that luxury, or if I could accomplish this or that, then I would be content, I would be fulfilled. But here we find a man who did it all. And yet still said vanity. All is vanity. Help us learn from this example. Lord, help us take this man's words to heart. He was a wise man. And help us, Lord, to take our needs to our Lord Jesus and to lean on him for our deepest needs and help us to live our lives around Jesus. He is our rock. We pray all this in his wonderful name. And everyone said, did you enjoy the book of Ecclesiastes?